Hi, and welcome to this audio edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. On this program, we discuss polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism from a biblical Christian perspective. We talk about the history of polygamy, its modern-day fruit, share stories from people who have escaped polygamy, and talk about current events relating to polygamy. You can learn more about the video edition of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. And now, here's Doris. Welcome to our show tonight. This is Polygamy, What Love Is This? And I am your host, Doris Hansen. Of course, we're here live every Thursday night to talk about polygamy, whether it's polygamy that was in the Bible or polygamy by Joseph Smith or contemporary polygamy. We talk about those issues. Tomorrow is Good Friday. And of course, Easter Sunday is only two days later. And because the Easter season is truly the most important Christian holiday, we couldn't let it pass without doing a show focusing on the reason for the Easter season. Atonement is the word most often used to describe Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. And that word atonement, however, is misused and wrongly understood in this culture. Since Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection is the utmost importance to our eternity, we can understand why there would be false teaching and fuzzy ideas muddying the waters about God's plan of salvation. Joseph Smith laid the foundations of Mormonism. He was the first Mormon, the first Mormon polygamist. He lived polygamy. He taught polygamy. He lied about polygamy. And he said that righteousness comes from living polygamy. Worst of all, he said that God commanded polygamy for those who were working for their exaltation. But we continue to ask the question, if polygamy saves us, then why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did he suffer such agony if we could be saved through the agony of living polygamy? Remission of our sins is what is required before anyone can go into God's heaven. Polygamy does not wash away our sins. So obviously the question is, in what way or ways does living polygamy accomplish atonement for our sins if polygamy saves us? If it does, then Jesus died on the cross in vain. But if it doesn't, then polygamy is in vain and totally useless. Contemporary polygamy group leaders continue to teach their, that polygamy is required for eternal life. So tonight we're going to discuss what was actually done for us in Jesus' work on the cross for our atonement. What was the atonement? What is the biblical meaning of the word? What did the atonement accomplish and where did it take place? These are all very important questions and does determine the core teachings of true Christianity and God's plan for eternal life. Our guest tonight to discuss this topic was a guest on our show in 2010 when we discussed a research paper that she wrote about the biblical practice of polygamy, Was It a Command from God? And you can watch that particular show if you go to our archives on our website, whatloveisthis.tv, and you can click online shows and scroll down to... Um, 2000, the year 2010, and then click on show number 329. She has uh, completed another research 
paper in which she focused on Jesus' atonement and salvation, comparing the teachings of Mormonism on these subjects with what the Bible teaches. She's a graduate student from William Carey International University in Pasadena, California. I would like to introduce and welcome our guest tonight, Lisa Seville. Well, thank you very much for having me. And thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to have you again. Thank we did you. A, a good informative show last time, and yeah. we have another good one tonight. Okay. And so thank you for your work and, and for coming. Uh, we do need to clarify uh, during our conversation tonight that when we say Mormonism, we include all Mormon polygamy groups and their teachings. And when we say salvation, we mean it the way the Bible defines it, which means safety, deliverance, preservation from danger or destruction. It is and means total and complete eternal life. Salvation is not resurrection as Mormonism has defined it. So tonight we're going to be discussing the atonement from a paper that you wrote. So would you give us an overview of the topic and why you chose that topic for your research paper? Yeah, well one of the goals of my graduate work is to produce research that will be helpful to a ministry. And I have a real heart for what you do here on the show and also the other activities of Shield and Refuge Ministry. So I've had that in mind for a long time and we're given broad assignments with you know certain requirements but we're expected to focus on what our interest is and so my goal was to choose a topic that would be meaningful to the culture of people that your show reaches and I had the atonement in mind and I didn't tell you that but I asked you if you had any topics that um, you might like me to do some research in and you said the atonement so we really felt like that was from the Lord. And the atonement is the crux of the gospel message, the crux of our salvation, and the crux of our reconciliation with God. So we'll be talking more about what those words mean as we go along. And that's so important. Of course it is, since it, our eternity depends upon that. And of course, we challenge our viewers all the time to show us <coughs> where in the Bible a requirement is found for plural marriage for salvation. Does your uh, uh, paper address that? If so, how does it Well, do that? because of that challenge, I wanted to do a thorough study of what exactly the Bible says is required for salvation. And this particular assignment was to do a comparative paper. And so I did a comparison of what was taught by early Mormon leaders and Mormon scriptures. And then I compared that with what the Bible says. Okay, so when we, <clears throat> when we talk about salvation in regards to the atonement and, and what the Bible says about eternal life, um, it's, it, it's not resurrection. Salvation is actually God acting on behalf of someone in danger. And we're all in danger of condemnation because of our sins. That is a very clear biblical message. Now you focused your paper on just a few verses in Hebrews, verses that are packed with meaning for any student of the Bible. So what are those verses? Well, I focused my study on Hebrews 5, 5 through 8, but just because that's just a handful of select verses does not mean I'm taking them out of context. Quite the contrary. I studied in detail the cultural, historical, and literary context of the Bible regarding those verses, and then I compared that with the standard works of Mormonism and then the teachings of early Mormon leaders. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Sounds like you did a real good, thorough job. So we're going to look at the passages that you studied 
studied and they're going to go up on the screen so our viewers can read them with us and it is Hebrews chapter 5 verses 5 through 10 which say verse 5 so Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest but God said to him you are my son today I have become your father and he says in another place you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Right, so in the epistle to the Hebrews, Jesus emerges as our high priest, and I looked into what that means in the teachings of Mormonism and what it means to biblical Christians, and I asked the question, does it have the same meaning to each of them, and if not, then what's the difference? And of course, there are big differences, which our show is about tonight. Your paper, of course, is about Hebrews, but you actually started, we read the New Testament Hebrews verses, but you actually started in the Old Testament. So why did you do that? Well, since the author and the original readers of the book of Hebrews would be coming with an Old Testament understanding, I began my research by exploring the role of the high priest in the Old Testament, what the Day of Atonement was, and what that meant to believers of the Old Testament before Christ came. Okay, so when we read the Bible, we don't get to interpret the Bible however we think best. We, we, we have to use, and we can't use other books right. either to interpret the Bible. We, the Bible interprets itself, right. and uh, it stands alone, and it is the standard. So when we read the Old Testament, we can, uh, and the New Testament, we can know by comparing Scripture with Scripture what the interpretation is. Right. So give us a quick overview of what the Old Testament day of a atonement was and what it meant to the believers of that time. Sure. Well, in the minds of the original readers of the book of Hebrews, because of sin, man becomes separated in their relationship with God, and man needs a mediator in order to draw near to God seeking reconciliation. Oh, so what is reconciliation? Why do we need that? Well, it's like restoration. So it's restoring something that's broken, and what's been broken is that relationship between God and man because of sin. In the Old Testament, descendants of Aaron were set apart for the priesthood to play the role of mediator between God and Israel. And how was that done? Well, if people committed sin without intent, they could offer sacrifices all throughout the year at any time, and the priests would help with that. But when one committed sin with forethought, they waited for the Day of Atonement to ask for forgiveness, and that's where the role of the high priest comes in. Okay, now this is interesting because there is the obviously priesthood in all of Mormonism, whether Mm -hmm. it's polygamy groups or the mainline church. What did the Old Testament high priest do? Well, as I said, sin offerings were offered all year round, and this would bring impurities into the temple, requiring it to be cleansed. And the high priest was the one in particular who could go before God on behalf of the people of Israel on the Day of Atonement, and he would start by cleansing the temple of its impurities, and that was done with blood from an animal that was sacrificed. And then the high priest would be the only one that could go on this day alone into what was called the Holy of Holies. And that's a special part of the temple where God's presence was. And he would go into that Holy of Holies to ask for forgiveness for the intentional sins for all of Israel. 
And part of that was offering sacrifices because the shedding of blood was always required when asking for forgiveness. And so there was no cleansing without the shedding of blood, without right. applying the blood. And of course, right. we we can see some red, some you know, some lights going on here. Or should be. Um, we need to quote Hebrews nine twenty two at this point because it's important to know as we go on from here. So Hebrews nine twenty two, uh, the last part of the verse says, "And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission." No remission of sins. Now, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That's what that means. Right. So it is not water baptism that accomplishes remission of sin. It is the shedding of blood. Right. And so suffice it to say here that vivid detail can be found in the 16th chapter of Leviticus as to what is required of the high priest as he went before God on behalf of the people to ask for forgiveness of sins. So the role of the high priest was not to go before God, um, but what was to go before God on behalf of the people and not as Mormon fundamentalists believe that the role of the priest is to act for God. Correct. Right? Correct. In, in fact, the Bible refers to those who trust in Jesus as their Savior, as members of the priesthood. And of course, every one of our lives are to be an extension of God's loving mercy and grace because His Spirit indwells us once we put our trust in Christ for our salvation. Mm -hmm. And we'll be talking more about salvation soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll talk about that all through tonight. Now, you t we talk about priesthood, um, and this culture is big on the priesthood, but the priesthood of believers uh, that, that we enjoy, male and female alike, is called in the New Testament the royal priesthood. There's a verse in 1 Peter speaking to biblical Christians about our priesthood. It's 1 Peter 2.9, and it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So that's the priesthood of all believers um, that all male and female alike are associated with. But it's not in the capacity or the activity of the Old Testament Levitical priests. That is gone forever having been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ. So the verses that you studied tell us why Jesus came. Why did he come? He came to become our high priest and to go before the Father on our behalf, just like the high priest did in the Old Testament, because Jesus has now become our perfect sacrifice for us. And some later verses in Hebrews talk about that. But in the Old Testament, believers needed the high priest to go before the Lord every year on their behalf. But now Jesus has made a way that we can come directly to God. Hebrews 10:14 says, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. One offering forever. That's very good. So after covering uh, the Old Testament Day of Atonement, you come back to Hebrews yep. chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, and talk about the suffering high priest. And so we find that in verses 7 and 8 of Hebrews 5, which says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, he was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. 
And one of the characteristics of the high priest is that he be able to sympathize with the weaknesses of those that he represents. Now in these verses, Jesus feels his humanity immensely, and he knew what was to come. It was in Gethsemane that Christ prayed to the Father with the crucifixion in mind. Mm -hmm. With the cruc, definitely in that. We know that Mormon polygamists follow the LDS tradition on most doctrine. In fact, you found a great quote by Warren Jess, and he was no exception at all. He taught that Jesus atoned for our sin nature in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you have that quote that you want to share yeah, with us. Yeah, that quote is, Christ is the only begotten in the flesh and atoned for our sin nature in the Garden of Gethsemane, but not our sins. We must be baptized in order to have our sins forgiven. Young people, you've been told to have a testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. This story today is what you must understand the most. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the weight of the sins of all mankind were coming upon him, and he, feeling this great weight and pain, was praying for strength to endure it. Now, you know, he's a little contradictory in him here. He says he didn't die for our sins. He died for our sin nature, and then he talks about him feeling the weight of our sins. So he didn't even, you know, obviously contradicted himself right there. But, but what he said here, is that in line with what the Bible teaches? No, it's not. Paul emphasized again and again that Christ's death was of primary importance. And Bill McKeever and Eric Johnson talk about this in their book, Mormonism 101. And I think that they just said it best when in their book they say Christ's expiration not his perspiration was accepted as the basis for making amends for the wrongdoings of believers. And that is very true and very good. Hebrews 9.22 states that the shedding of blood is necessary for the remission of sins. And we read that verse. Mm -hmm. And verse 26 tells us that Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice. He sweat in the garden is hardly equal to the sacrificial shedding of his blood. A sacrifice is not sweating, it's death. Right, and just as in on the Day of Atonement, everything centered around the death of those animal sacrifices, and mm -hmm. so was Christ's death of primary importance. Exactly, because it was a foreshadow of what was gonna happen. Right. And the animals never went in any garden and sweat blood. So there, there, there's no way that that's what it could be. Paul stressed the death of Christ throughout the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul wrote, I delivered unto you first of all that Christ died for our sins. He didn't say Christ died for our sin nature, uh, as Warren Jeffs taught. He, and he doesn't say that Christ bled in the garden for our sins. It says he died. And that, of course, is the cross of death. Yes, and the New Testament clearly does emphasize the death of Jesus Christ. Another scholar pointed out that all but three New Testament writings, longer than a single chapter, all refer to the death of Christ on the cross. And here's the list. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, 11 of Paul's 13 epistles, Hebrews, 1 Peter, 1 John, and Revelation, all refer to Christ on the cross. In fact, most of these books make repeated references to mm -hmm. Christ's death. They do. And I would add that when Paul went to the Corinthians, he proclaimed in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, quote, For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He didn't say, and Him bleeding in the garden. Obviously, it's His death on the cross that is of importance. That's right. And 1 Peter 2.24 clearly states, 
that the sins of mankind were laid upon Jesus on the cross, and it's the death of Jesus that pays for our sins. Exactly right. Now, for Mormon fundamentalists who do not understand getting saved or don't think they need to be saved, and I've had emails and letters from Mormon fundamentalists as well as LDS who say, we don't need to be saved. We've got this, 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 and this. We don't need to be saved. Well, what does the Bible mean? What, is it, what does it mean about being saved? Je Jesus frequently talked about getting saved. Right. Well, just like in the Old Testament, there's separation between God and man due to sin, so that affects every one of us today. The Bible says in Romans that we've all sinned, and so we need something to restore that relationship with God. We deserve death, and just like in the Old Testament, they gave sacrifices once a year. Well, God sent Jesus to be that sacrifice for all time so that we can all be reconciled to God. And so we didn't need a restoration of the gospel that Joseph Smith claimed he brought. We need a restoration of a relationship, relationship. with God. And reconciliation does not and cannot happen until our sins are removed by the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says we're saved from, we have to be saved from something, we're saved from God's wrath. All of us face God's hatred of sin. In John 3.36 it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So God's wrath remains on that person who does not turn to Jesus alone for uh, the gift of eternal life. And those who do trust Jesus and not any works or ordinances are saved and safe, according to Romans 5, 9, that says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So there's a difference between the blood sacrifices offered in the Old Testament and Jesus being offered right. in the New Testament. Right. What is the difference? The difference is that the sacrifices had to be offered year after year, but Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, and so it's once for all time. The Bible teaches that what brings salvation is faith alone in the gospel message that Christ has died in the sinner's place, and God has raised him from the dead to bring restoration with that sinner in their relationship with God. Mm. Well, let's... Um, go to the next two verses that you covered in your paper, which is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, where Jesus, it says, Jesus, having been made perfect, became to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation, designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. What does it mean that he has become the source of our eternal salvation? Now, I would have to say that if he's the source, our works and ordinances and living polygamy could not be the source of our eternal life. Right. Well, His becoming our eternal salvation has nothing to do with moral perfection. The statement is similar instead to verse 2.10, also in Hebrews, and God states that Christ has been made perfect through His sufferings. And having been made perfect refers to being perfectly equipped to fulfill His saving mission rather than moral perfection, because Christ was never not perfect and sinless. He was always perfect he was always and sinless. Perfect. And He couldn't have 
paid for our sins if he had his own sins to pay for. So he right. had to be perfect, which he was. And so this salvation, is it applied to everybody so that everyone everywhere will all be saved? No, this verse says that it's for believers, for those who have trusted in Christ for their salvation. So polygamy or religious ordinances or all the things that people do, they have nothing to do with it? Right. Nothing to do with it at all. So, and that's totally different than what most people uh, are raised to believe with their inner religion. So let's talk more about salvation. In your study for, for your paper, uh, you were required to make comparisons. Mm -hmm. So what did you learn about salvation according to Mormonism? Now this also includes, well, all of Mormonism, right. whatever Mormon faction you belong to. Right, well Mormonism teaches actually a vastly different concept of salvation than what the Bible does. It teaches that there are three kingdoms and almost everyone will be resurrected to and receive a place in one of the lower two kingdoms. And the lower of the lower two kingdoms, according to Mormonism, is for liars, sorcerers, whoremongers, and adulterers in this life. And the although it's lower than the higher two kingdoms, they, still, they say that its glory still surpasses all understanding. And then it teaches that good people, but those who are not Mormons, will go to the middle kingdom, and then the highest kingdom is called the celestial kingdom. And of course, the polygamy groups teach you can't get there unless you're <clears throat> unless you're a polygamist, and it's from there you learn how to become a god, which we're going to talk about right now. According to your research, what are the requirements of Mormon fundamentalists to go to the celestial kingdom? Um, just a minute. <laughs> um, the requirements to go to the celestial kingdom. Well, each group in Mormonism has a slightly different plan of salvation, but they're all very similar. For instance, in the, kingdom the Kingston group, the plan is first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sin, and fourth, laying on of hands for, with, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now that's very interesting because it m mentions nothing about polygamy. This is in one of their printed materials, but mm -hmm. it doesn't mention polygamy, and yet they teach polygamy is required. And this wording also that you just read um, is very close to the LDS's church's it plan for salvation. And, right. and probably for most all of the polygamy groups, they all have their little tweak right. that they put into it. And for all of Mormonism, the celestial kingdom has yet another three degrees of glory, and followers of Mormonism are taught from birth that they're to strive for, to attain that highest degree so that they can become gods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the ultimate, is to become a god. Did your research uncover what the polygamists teach they have to do to become a god, which to them is different than just going to heaven? Well, most fundamentalists teach something close to the following. To reach the highest degree of the celestial glory, one must fulfill and be faithful to the first four that I already stated, mm -hmm. plus belong to the particular polygamy group, be faithful to the united order, keep all the commandments, be married to the person the leadership claims God has assigned to them, practice polygamy, and be obedient to the polygamy group leaders. And for women, they need to be obedient to their husbands. For men, they need to be obedient to those who are in authority above them. Exactly. And, and so uh, the, the obvious question here would be, if Christ died for our sins, and He gave us the gift of eternal life in that death and in, in, on the cross, what's all these works? What's that got to do with it? Right. Um, 
polygamy for salvation is totally different than the biblical plan. In fact, is opposite of God's true plan of salvation. Right, as we stated before, the Bible states that what brings salvation is faith alone in the gospel message that Christ has died in the sinner's place and God has raised him from the dead to bring restoration with that sinner in his relationship with God. You know, the simplicity of God's plan is absolutely astounding. That was one of the things that just enthralled me when I first started learning these things, the simplicity of His plan of salvation. One of the many places that we find it in the New Testament is in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 and it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Right, and that is really the only requirement. Actually, it's an unearned gift. And following the Lord in obedience in such things as baptism, making disciples, loving one's family, and other works, they'll naturally flow from the true believer who trusts in Christ for their salvation. And, and you know, a lot of people say, I don't know if you've had conversations like this, but they'll say, well, that's too easy. But you know what? It's actually too hard for most people. Uh, they refuse to invite Jesus to be Lord of their lives and they refuse to allow him to take over as Lord of their life and live God's way, uh, to be Lord of their plans, to be Lord of their dreams, Lord of their marriage, Lord of their everyday life, Lord of all. And, and that is not as easy as people like to say it is because we give over everything to him. He died for us and so we give our life to him. It's not a bad way to live. Did you discover anywhere in the Bible that marriage or polygamy is required for salvation? Nowhere in the Bible does it say or even hint that marriage is a requirement for salvation. In fact, in some circumstances, singleness is encouraged in this life, and the Bible states clearly that there is absolutely no marriage in heaven. Did you discover anywhere in the Bible that good men can become gods? No, becoming gods is absolutely impossible. The Bible is clear that there is only one God, and men do not and cannot become gods. Our goal as believers in the Bible is not to become a god because there is only one God and will forever only be, only be one God. One God. And one more question and then we're going to go to the break. Okay. And the levels of heaven, we talked about there being three levels of heaven and then three levels in the celestial. Does that square up with the Bible? No, according to the Bible, there are just two eternal destinies for all people, either eternal life in heaven with God or eternal punishment. And those who are not saved through faith in Christ are lost and their destiny is eternal damnation. And these are all biblical. We hope that our uh, viewers will check this Bible out, check out what we've said. We've got more to talk about and we invite you to join the conversation. We're going to open up our telephones now. Our phone number is 801-973-8820. Give us a call and let's hear what you have to say about this, your opinion or any questions that you might have, anything you might like to ask our guest. Uh, give us a call and while we're waiting the calls to come in, we want to share our message with you. You are watching Polygamy, What Love Is This? Broadcasting live from Salt Lake City, Utah. This program is the broadcast outreach of A Shield and Refuge Ministry. Shield and Refuge is a point of first contact for Mormon fundamentalists who question the doctrines of the religion or who are actively seeking for an opportunity to escape the polygamist lifestyle. 
Examining the claims of fundamentalist doctrine against the backdrop of biblical truth is central to our efforts. We invite you to contact us. Call toll-free at 877-425-9993 or email us at tv at aboutpolygamy.com. We have made available to you some outstanding resources free of charge. You will find them at our website, www.whatloveisthis.tv. While you are at our website, make sure to take advantage of the archived episodes of this program, which can stream on demand directly to your computer. And if someone you know is unable to view this program via live broadcast, recommend that they visit this same website every Thursday at 8 p.m. Mountain Time to watch this show through live streaming video. If you are watching live tonight, we invite you to call us as we open our phone lines. The number is 801-973-TV20. That's 801-973-8820. Now, back to Polygamy, What Love Is This? with our host, Doris Hansen. Go to the phones. Welcome back to our show. This is Polygamy, What Love Is This? We are thankful that you're watching our show tonight. We do hope that you have learned something fresh and new about the atonement of Jesus Christ. The atonement was not in the Garden of Gethsemane. The atonement was on the cross. And that is where the sins, our sins, were paid for. Uh, our guest here is Lisa Seville. She is from Pasadena, California, uh, and she has joined us uh, for the um, conversation tonight. You wrote a research paper on this topic mm -hmm. specifically, and she is sharing that with us, and we thank you again for that. Our telephone lines are open. Our telephone number is 801-973-8820. Give us a call if you would like to join our discussion or if you have questions or comments that otherwise you'd like to make. Now, Jesus testified that many people will be resurrected unsaved. Now, I know Mormonism teaches that salvation is resurrection. And, and, but Jesus didn't say that. He said in Matthew 23, 33, quote, Ye serpents, ye generations of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Now, Jesus is warning them about hell. This was the religious leaders too, by the way. And, and also, the Book of Mormon has many references to burning in hell and everlasting punishment for sinners. And most LDS people refuse to believe in a God who will send people to hell, but they need to throw away their Book of Mormon if they refuse to believe what it says because it also teaches that. In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus said, The hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They <clears throat> that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So here again he's talking that there's two places, only two places, two resurrections. One resurrection is to, to eternal life. The other is to eternal damnation, which Jesus called hell. Now, this is all very important stuff. It's your eternity depends upon it. That's right. So, Lisa, would you summarize our discussion tonight so that our polygamist and our LDS viewers can sure. understand more clearly what the atonement is according to Jesus' testimony? Yeah, well, although Mormons, fundamentalists, and biblical Christians share the belief that um, faith in Christ is necessary for salvation, it was found in our study of the perception 
of what Jesus did on the atonement and what is required for salvation differ from one another in significant ways. And one way is that the priesthood is taught by Mormonism as an office to be held in order to act for God in this life and necessary for exaltation. The Bible says that the priesthood was always for the purpose of going before God to do what was necessary to reconcile people to himself. And God made a way for believers to have access to himself for all time through the death of Jesus. And Jesus continues to act as, on our behalf as intercessor between us and the Father. And then in Mormonism, the atonement took place in the garden and on the cross. And the, cross, the garden, though, is given preeminence in many of their teachings. And the Bible says that the garden is where Jesus agonized about what was to come on the cross. And the cross is to be given preeminence in regard to the atonement and in all things. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, the, the, very good. It is, it's very good, Lisa. Thank you. And the most significant difference is in the teaching of salvation, exaltation between the teaching of Mormonism and the biblical teaching. Right? Yes, Mormonism teaches three levels of heaven, three levels of the highest heaven, and perdition. According to Mormonism, the requirements for living with God in the afterlife are many. It teaches that once exaltation is attained, one can become God. And the Bible offers only two destinies, and the determiner is faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. And one will never become a God because there is only one God. The view of Jesus' role on the cross and what is involved in salvation are fundamental to the faith of mm -hmm. historic Christianity. And someone said very clearly, it's not what we do for God, it's what God has done for us. Amen. And that's basically what it is. One thing is for sure, the Bible came first and it has proven to be reliable and historical and life-changing. We must judge all subsequent books, such as the standard works of Mormonism, with the Bible as our standard. All religious writings are to be judged by the Bible. It came first. Polygamy, any polygamous people who may be watching this, you truly do not need to live polygamy or follow your group leader or be faithful to the United Order. Jesus alone is to be your master. You can get out and God will not be angry with you or come after you if you do get out. And we urge you, if you need help, give us a call. We would love to talk with you and help you in any way that we can. We have a call coming in. Uh, on line three. It's Kim from Manti. Kim, you're on the air. Hi, Doris. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Um, I just kind of have a comment. You've been talking about um, the high priest and how once a year they would have to go into the, um, the temple for the atonement for the, the um, nation's sin. Mm -hmm. And um, I just wanted to make a comment that when they had to go through that temple, there was a veil there, and that veil kept the area sealed so no one could see the Holy of Holies. Mm -hmm. And in um, in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, 19 through 20, it says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Mm-hmm. Very good. His flesh. That veil was ripped. 
his uh -huh. flesh with his lips so that we could go one-on-one -on -one as believers in Christ in the presence of God mm -hmm. as Jesus' death removed that veil. Right. It removed the veil and it's still down. We cannot put the veil back up. The veil is down and we can now come boldly to the throne of grace. That's what the Bible Absolutely. tells us. Absolutely. And for that veil to stay up, it's mm -hmm. blasphemy. That's right, it is blasphemy. And, and, and when it says the veil is his flesh, of course, it was his flesh ripped on the cross, not in the garden. Right. In fact, he wasn't even whipped. His flesh wasn't even ripped until after the garden experience. So there's no way the atonement could have been in the garden. It didn't even yeah. begin there, actually. The garden was a place of prayer, not, not uh, punishment. Right, right. Well, thank you, Kim. We do appreciate okay, your input. Okay, I just wanted to share that with the viewers. Thank you. Very good. Okay. Appreciate your call. Thanks, Doris. Uh-huh. Love you. Good night. Love you, too. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. They're a very good point that, that she made. Of course, Hebrews is full of wonderful uh, information like that. We have an off-the-air question. What about outer darkness? Who goes there? Do you want to tackle that one? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, Do you have an answer to that? <laughs> <laughs> that? That is a cultural thing here. Uh, yeah. Outer darkness. Now, biblically, outer darkness, uh, hell, condemnation, damnation, all of those words that we don't like, all of those are the same thing. Uh, in the Mormon culture, the polygamy, the fundamentalists, all of that, they all believe that outer darkness is a special extra place that people go. Um, but not according to the Bible. It, it's all, there's either, you either go to heaven or you go to condemnation, and condemnation just is inclusive of all of those uh, words that you use. So outer darkness is not a special place like it is in Mormonism. Not different, in, in other words, from regular condemnation or hell. Okay, I hope that answers your question. Okay, we have on line one, Brian from Cottonwood Heights. Hello, Brian. How you doing, Doris? Hi, you're on the air. Yeah, my question is, are you guys quoting from Corinthians 15:40 on the celestial and the celestial bodies? No, we didn't I quote that. We didn't quote that tonight. We've used that before in other shows, but not tonight. We haven't. But that's uh, not talking. That's not talking about heaven, though. If you look at the context, it's not talking about heaven at all. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to point that out. It's talking about a, a body in heaven is celestial, and a body on earth is celestial. Right. If you look it up in Young's literal, it just says heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but my friends constantly quote that to me, hey, I'm going to the lowest kingdom because I don't agree with them. Mm -hmm. no. <laughs> okay. Well, we agree, with okay. The, we agree with the Bible, Brian, and that's what's important. <laughs> Thank you. Is there another scripture that quotes celestial and celestial, or is that the only one? Um, that's the only one that, that I can think of that talks about the celestial and the telestial, but it's just talking about the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the sky. That's all it's talking about, and our bodies here on earth. And there was no, there's no such word as telestial. Uh, it was coined, I think, by Joseph Smith. I looked in the dictionary when I first started studying these things, and it might be in a modern dictionary now, but it wasn't in one of the older dictionaries. It wasn't a word. Joseph Smith made it up. Okay, well, okay. thank you. Thank you. Bye Thanks bye. for calling. Uh, good night. 
Okay, I, I'd like to remind our viewers that uh, we've talked about this in the past shows that TV20 may be sold. Uh, we don't know the, the, what's going on with it right now, but we'll keep you updated as soon, uh, whenever details are made known. Um, and because so much truth of Mormonism and polygamy and Joseph Smith has been made known because of internet, uh, we want you to know that we're not going to discontinue our shows, but we will just simply trans, uh, transition from um, live broadcasting on TV20 to internet broadcasting when the time comes. Uh, we're, we will keep you updated, of course, as the progress or lack of progress is made known to us. Uh, right now, we don't have any timing involved, but we will let you know when we find out. Our phones are open. We'd love to hear from you. We've had a couple of good calls already. Uh, Polygamous, uh, if you're watching, if you still think that you must do what you're doing for eternal life, give us a call. Let's talk about it and talk through it. Maybe LDS viewers, if you're watching and you still believe that the atonement was done in the garden or you don't even think it matters where it was, just that it was done, give us a call. Let's talk about it. Our number is 801-973-8820. Um, there's a couple of, of um, scriptures I'd like to quote right now and talk about something that is important mm -hmm. because I've, I've received emails about this next thing. And I'm going to um, quote John 129 and 1 John 2, 2. John 1.29 says, Behold, this is John the Baptist. He, he's, he's out talking with his disciples and he sees Jesus walking. And he looks at Jesus and he tells his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then in 1 John 2.2 2, he says, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, the removal of sins we've already talked about took place through the atonement, right. through what Jesus did on the cross. But you know what? I received many, many telephone calls and emails uh, from those in Mormonism who claim that because Jesus takes away the sins of the world, everyone will be saved. The whole world is going to go to heaven. In fact, here's one comment from uh, someone who emails me in particular. She disagrees with me all the time. But this is one thing that she said, and I quote, Everyone will go to heaven, but where you go depends on what you did on this earth. Now that's a confusing statement that she made. But according to Jesus, not everyone is going to go to heaven. According to your research, comparing Mormon doctrine with biblical Christianity, mm -hmm. is that what John is saying? No, many people use those verses to argue for universal salvation, but the Bible clearly teaches that not everyone will be saved. And we have to conclude that those verses refer to sin that is common to all mankind, and His sacrifice makes salvation available to all people. But again, many will not be saved, right. and it's important that we understand what salvation is, and that we do what is needed to receive that reconciliation with God that's offered to right. us. So everybody in the world is eligible to receive this salvation, but not everyone will get it. Not everyone will go to heaven. Jesus, we just read verses in John where Jesus said some people would be raised uh, in the resurrection to condemnation. That's not going to heaven. Right. Nobody is, who's condemned is going to go to heaven. So Jesus himself said not everyone will be saved. In fact, Jesus said that there's the broad way and the narrow way, and the narrow way is the way to life, to eternal life, and few there will be who find it, he said. Few. Not everybody goes to heaven. 
And I really believe this culture needs to get that and understand that. Um, and there's only one heaven. So according to the Greek lexicon, Lisa, what does the word atonement mean? And how many times is it used in the New Testament? Well, in Thayer's Greek lexicon, atonement is defined as the restoration of the favor of God to sinners that repent and put their trust in the expiatory death of cross of Christ. Sorry, And expiatory means the canceling of sin. As a concept, the atonement's all over the New Testament, but the word only appears once in Romans 5, 11. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, th I think an important thing to mention here is the atonement, word atonement is used only once, but the concept is all over, the, all the Bible from beginning right. to end, the right. concept of the atonement is all over. And Jesus, of course, fulfilled the atonement in his death on the cross. Mormon doctrine refers to it frequently very frequently of uh, being the sufferings in the garden. The Bible only mentions his suffering in the garden once, once, and that's in Luke chapter 22 verse 44. Now if the atonement was salvation, if that's where, where God paid for our sins, wouldn't it be in all four Gospels? Wouldn't it be mentioned by Paul and, and, and Peter and James? Wouldn't they talk about it being in the garden, but they never say a word about that. It's always the cross. Always the cross is where our salvation uh, took place. Um, in fact, in Luke 22:44, when it's talked about there, it says that Jesus sweat like unto, in King James, like great drops of blood that fell to the ground. Now, like is not the actual thing, is it? Right. So did he sweat just huge drops of sweat, like drops of blood, heavy? Or did he sweat blood? There's nothing in the text that says it was actual blood that he was sweating in the garden. So we have to take it for what it says and can't make things up and add to it. Right, and as we stated before, the death and resurrection are mentioned in almost every book of the New Testament, repeatedly in many of them, and he clearly atoned for our sins on the cross, as we gave the verse before in 1 Peter 2.24. On the cross, and it didn't begin in the garden and end on the cross. Right. Because none of, of, of the sufferings that he had to go through to pay for our sins began until after he was arrested, after he left the garden. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have uh, line two, Sharon calling from Ogden. Hello, Sharon, you're on the air. Hello, Sharon. Hey. Yes. yes. You're on the air. Yes, thank you so much for taking my call, Ms. Doris. You're welcome. Uh, this may seem like a very strange question, but could you tell me what happened to the veil when Christ was on the cross recalling that uh, when he was crucified, the veil was split in two, is that correct? Yes, that's correct, from top to bottom. Well, where is that veil now? It has to be in at least two sections. Well, the, the temple... The temple was um, was reduced to rubble in AD 70. The Romans came in and completely decimated and destroyed the temple, and not one rock was left upon another. Uh, it was destroyed so badly, and all the Jews were forced out of Jerusalem. So the veil, wherever they put it after it was ripped in two, uh, I have no idea, but it and everything else in the temple was destroyed. 
so we have to just assume that the uh, veil went along with all the other things that were destroyed by the Romans. It was destroyed completely. It was destroyed by God first when Jesus died on the cross. God destroyed the veil. There's no more veil. It's gone. Not to be returned ever. If anybody brings back any veil and say you have to go through the veil to get to God, they are blasphemous because that isn't true. And Kim from Manti, she just called and mentioned that in Hebrews, that the veil represented Jesus' body that was torn for us. It's gone well, now. It's happened once. I'm sorry. I had my, I had my phone turned up. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't get that. Um, so according to, to someone else, the veil represented uh, Jesus. According, according to Hebrews chapter 10, the veil represented Jesus' body broken for us. Well, we certainly know it was broken for us. Yes. We certainly know. And that happened on the cross, uh, not in the garden. That, that, that's a fact. Uh, I want to tell you just how much I appreciate your program. I listen to you uh, on a Thursday night. And I listened to you again the following Thursday morning and picked up what I lost. And so I want you to know I truly enjoy you, Ms. Dorn. Thank you, Sharon. I appreciate your call. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you so uh -huh. much. Good night. Good evening. Mm -hmm. Good night. Okay, we have another call coming. Um, line one, D from West Jordan is calling. D, can you make it quick? We're getting towards the close of the show. Oh. <laughs> oh dear. Um, well, I'm talking about um, Psalm 37, uh -huh. 29. Okay. If I'm here. Dee, what was your question? Um, <clears throat> well, it seems like there's two different kinds of, of people there. There's the ones that will be here on earth, but will live forever because Psalm 37 says that the the righteous will possess the earth and live forever on it, whereas also Matthew talks about in chapter 5 where there's going to be those conscious of their spiritual needs and they are going to heaven, and, but in verse 5 it says, happy are the mild tempered, since they will inherit the earth. So there's going to be those that die and go to heaven, but there will be those less righteous on the earth. Well, that's a whole different uh, that's a whole different study in the Bible, D. There will be people left on the earth after, uh, or, or God will will have people on the earth after the um, the resurrection, um, and it's that's just a whole different study that we can't go in tonight. We've only got another minute. Yes, that but, is a long subject. Yeah, <laughs> it is. So we're, we'll have to deal with that another time. But everybody is going to die and either go to heaven or to hell. Period. Until the end of time, that's the way it's but going to be. <laughs> well, I would rather go to heaven. Okay. I'd rather go to heaven, Dee, because that's where the pleasures are beside with God forevermore. Okay, thank you for calling. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye. Well, um, it looks like that we only have uh, a few seconds left. Lisa, thanks for coming and sharing. My pleasure. Uh, you did a good job on this paper, just like you did on your other paper. Oh, thank you. And uh, you shared the very, very important doctrine of, the, of biblical Christianity. Uh, people who, who believe that they're Christians and don't believe in Christian doctrine need to get into the Bible and study it and read it 
and research like you did. Oh, thank you. Because the Bible explains itself very clearly. So thank you very mm -hmm. much. Um, and I would like to, of course, make my closing comments based on Easter. Um, tomorrow, of course, is the traditional Good Friday commemorating the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as the atonement for our sins. The cross tells the story of my salvation. Jesus' death on the cross, however, did not bring universal salvation for all mankind. He made it possible for everyone to be saved. But Jesus said that many will reject His gift of forgiveness and eternal life by trying to work for it instead. 1 Corinthians 11.26 tells us to celebrate communion or sacrament as Mormonism calls it. And we are to observe it to remember the Lord's death until He returns. Communion is not to remember His agony in the garden or to renew any covenants, but to remember His death until He returns. Jesus didn't die in the garden. He died on the cross. The garden was a place of prayer, not the place of atonement, and then finished on the cross. The cross alone was the place of atonement. Does this matter? Yes. Because only Jesus' death on the cross is acceptable payment for our sins. Atonement is important and necessary, but the resurrection is the most important of all. Because a dead Savior who is still in the grave is really no Savior at all. Jesus had to defeat death, which He did by His resurrection. And we pray that each viewer that's watching tonight will step up to the cross of Jesus and ask Jesus to make His death and the power of His resurrection active in their own lives so that His redemption will change your heart and will also change your eternity. And that is what is most important. We hope that you all have a great cross-centered Resurrection Sunday. Thank you for watching and good night. This has been the audio podcast edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? This program is a production of A Shield and Refuge Ministry and Main Street Church of Brigham City. You can view current and past video episodes as well as download audio episodes of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance in leaving a polygamous situation, please contact us. We are here to help. All of our contact information can be found at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 877-425-9993. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our other programs, we'd love to hear from you. Write us at email at whatloveisthis.tv. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again.